Upasikas, Upasikas, Mitras, and friends. Everybody knows, of course, that uh, today is Padmasambhava Day. We're not only celebrating Padmasambhava Day, but we've also had, as most of you know, as most of you have seen, the unveiling of our Nalanda crest. There is a sort of indirect connection, one could say, because there is an association between <coughs> Padmasambhava and uh, Nalanda. And there's also an association between the, the symbolism of the Nalanda crest and the symbolism of the life of Padmasambhava himself. In fact, even the name of Padmasambhava himself. Eh? As we may see in a minute or two, uh, Padmasambhava was associated with the great monastic university or spiritual community of Nalanda, hmm, whose crest it is adorns our gateway. And of course, part of the, the crest is a lotus, a lotus symbolizing spiritual birth, spiritual rebirth. Eh? And of course, Padmasambhava himself symbolizes that. In fact, his name Padmasambhava means the one who is born from the lotus, the one who is spiritually born, the one even who is spiritually reborn. Now, some of you may know, some of you may remember that quite a few years ago, on one of our Padmasambhava Day celebrations, I gave a talk about the life of Padmasambhava. And you may recollect that we saw then that Padmasambhava was born, so to speak. You'll see the significance of that remark in a moment. Huh? Born, so to speak, uh, in India in the 8th century. Hmm? That he came from a princely family. He, uh, he left home like the Buddha. He became a monk. He became a tantric teacher, tantric guru, became a great pundit, great scholar, renowned for his psychic powers, his mastery of yoga, and was altogether doing, so to speak, very well indeed in the world of Indian Buddhism, when there came one day to him a message, an invitation from the Kingdom of Tibet which was, of course, in those days very, very far away indeed from India. And perhaps he'd never thought of going to Tibet, going to the land of snows, but he did think about it. Now he thought very seriously, and in the end he decided to go. He was rather badly needed there, it seems, because some efforts were being made to introduce Buddhism into Tibet, into the land of snows, but there were obstacles. A great monastery, the monastery of Samye, was being built. And it was being built by someone who'd also gone uh, on invitation to Tibet, the Bodhisattva Shantarakshita, usually known as the Bodhisattva Abbot. So he was trying to build this great monastery of Samye, which was to be a center for the propagation of the Dharma in Tibet. But he wasn't able to do it. Hmm? He built a little bit, and then mysteriously, when they came to look in the morning, there was nothing there. The bricks that they put together, the stones that they put together, had mysteriously all gone back to their original places. 
And uh, those of you who've had this sort of experience, and <laughs> those of you who were, until quite recently, you know, building uh, or rebuilding uh, Sukhavati, you know, might have almost thought some mornings uh, when you went back to work to carry on from where you'd left off the previous night, it might have seemed as though some mysterious agency in the course of the night had undone your work and that you had to start all over again. But that was certainly the case in, in respect of Samye. The work was undone. And according to tradition, according to the, the story, according to the legends, it was the work of the Nagas. It was the work of the gods and demons of Tibet. They were, for some strange reason of their own, not in favour of the Dharma, not in favour of the teaching of the Buddha being introduced into Tibet, into the land of snow. So they opposed it with all their might. And the, the Bodhisattva Abbot, Shantarakshita, he was a very good man. He explains the Dharma very beautifully. Hmm? The, the ten ways of skillful action, hmm? the four noble truths, even the twelve links of conditioned co-production. Hmm? He explained all these things, all these teachings very beautifully, very clearly. But it seems that though the king was impressed, although the people of Tibet were impressed, the gods and demons of Tibet were not impressed at all. So they continued to undo his work. And of course, in desperation, Padmasambhava was eventually sent for. The Bodhisattva Abbot said to the king, there is, in India, there is at Nalanda a great teacher who is not only well-versed in Buddhist philosophy, not only well-versed in Buddhist meditation, but a master of the occult arts and the occult sciences, he will tame the gods and demons of Tibet. So Padmasambhava was sent for, and he came, and he did tame the gods and demons of Tibet, and it's a quite interesting story. He didn't have to spend, it seems, very long, at least according to some accounts, didn't have to spend a very long time in Tibet. Some accounts mention only 18 months, but that was enough. He subdued those gods and demons, he subdued those tremendous forces, and the Dharma was eventually established very firmly, very securely in Tibet. And Padmasambhava departed. We're, called, we're told that he departed for the land of the Rakshasas, wherever that Maybe. Eh? So this is the story. Eh? This is the story of the life of Padmasambhava as it has come down to us, as it were, through historical sources. Eh? This is not the whole story. This is the story which is accessible, so to speak, to secular history. And it's this story which, as I said a few moments ago, I recounted some years ago when we celebrated. Padmasambhava Day, I believe it was at Archway at Pundarika. So I'm not going to repeat this story, this ordinary story of the life of Padmasambhava in detail this evening. This evening I want to go off in a rather different direction. I want to explore a rather different dimension, as it were, of this whole question, eh? of this whole story, if you like, of Padmasambhava. Hmm?